0: Hey everybody, just wanted to preface this episode by saying that this was recorded about a month or a month and a half ago, Um, so the launch for this campaign was pushed back a little bit for strategic reasons, and uh, so we delayed this episode a bit, but Sophie is launched now, so everything that she says that isn't uh, exactly time sensitive, which does not include the um, the first thing you'll hear after the intro, but everything else should be basically relevant. So we'll have all the links for her campaign in the show notes, and otherwise, hope you enjoy.
1: Well, that's, that's actually something we we could talk about. Do you think uh, Carney is going to uh, like let the let the new marijuana legislation uh, just come into law without intervening or do you think he will intervene and veto it or do you think he will intervene and sign it
2: I think he's going to intervene and veto it
1: do you really I do (laughs) it's funny because I wouldn't I I actually um, I'm not surprised to hear you say that yeah because I can't I I want to I guess I want to think that it's so stupid that he would just not act and it would you know, whatever.
2: Yeah. I, but I would
1: not be surprised if that were true.
2: Yeah. Just based on his past things that he's done. I just I don't know. I don't think it's gonna be good.
1: No, I um I, I um no, I understand where you're coming from. Because he's he's very anti like if if you're going to, to do so much to sort of like uh you know, block it. Mm-hmm. And you have the opportunity just to send it back where you know it doesn't have the, the votes. Then I, I could see how you would do it. mm mm-hmm. Yeah. I like... You know what? I love your negative attitude. <laughs> I love how pessimistic you are.
2: I don't want to be. I know. <laughs> no, it's look, realistic. Look, we call
1: it realistic. That's <laughs> right. That's right. I love that. Yeah. Perfect. That's the perfect attitude. That's the attitude we're trying to foster here.
2: Yeah. Uh, for y- sure. you got to be realistic, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. Comrades and friends, Hello. Uh, we're in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're behind enemy lines. We're in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. And uh, we have a, a show I'm really looking forward to because uh, I think there's going to be a big change. And people don't... They, they might not see this as a big change, but I believe that it is. Uh, our guest tonight is Sophie Phillips. Um, Sophie is a <coughs> graduate student uh, at the University of Delaware uh, Public Policy Institute. Some people call it the Biden Institute. I mean, whatever, you know.
2: All well, the same thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, also, Sophie is a candidate uh, in RD-18 to um, sort of replace the retiring, stepping aside David Benz. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. And also, you guys will be shocked to know, Sophie is also Miss Delaware 2021. And look, everybody's very jealous about this. This is what it is. Everybody's going to have to fucking deal with it. (laughs) Sophie, thank you so much for coming in.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, well, let's start like this. We always start um, just sort of talking about people's background. Where they grew up, what it was like, how it might have informed um, their decisions of where they went to school or what issues that they were going to take up or, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, what what, what where did you grow up? What was it like?
2: Yeah, I actually grew up in Westchester County, New York. And I'm multiracial and I come from a multicultural background. So I'm African-American, Indian, Native Caribbean, and European. And I grew up in a really white area and I was often made fun of for looking different and having that different background from people that were my friends and, uh, For me, I always loved the environment. I always found it to be a really amazing space to get away from any of that negativity. And my mom always wanted to be a park ranger growing up. So she made sure that she got us into nature, into the parks as much as she could. She unfortunately grew up extremely poor and never had the opportunity to follow those dreams. She really needed to find a job that would pay a lot of money so that she could survive. And at that time as well, in the park service, they weren't really hiring women. So it wasn't an option, but she wanted to make sure that her kid would get the opportunity to potentially go into that career if I wanted to. Um, So a big part of why I focus on environmental justice now is because... A big part of my family never had access to that same nature that I did. My family that's African-American grew up in a city that had very little green space. And so their values don't align with mine when it comes to nature. They just never even thought about it. They didn't know about environmental careers or if they did that, it was an option for them. So I always wanted to make sure, you know, going into grad school, going into my studies that I was looking into that and trying to make a difference for anybody who grew up in cities and never had access to those options.
1: Yeah, I'm fascinated. You 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 mentioned that you you sort of felt uh, sort of left out because of your background and the way you identified. Mm-hmm. How did that? I mean, was it was it a way you identified? I mean, I maybe I'm um, maybe I'm out. I don't get it. But yeah. I wouldn't. Uh, you know, you're sitting here. I wouldn't think anything of it. Like I'd be like, oh, that's just the person. Like, do people think like that's and a native american person or an indian person or a, like how did that how
2: did how did that manifest itself do you know what i mean i do so i was really little when i first started experiencing getting made fun of for looking different a lot of the people in my school were just white no one really had curly hair even and my nose was considered big and flat in that area and nobody understood why i looked different than they did so they would attack me for looking this way and they didn't understand that you know when you come from a different background that's just the way that you look so i did everything that i could to make myself look whiter i straightened my hair until i burned it off i got colored contacts to make my eyes green and All of that just to try and fit into what was normal in the area that I grew up in
1: yeah the reason I asked that too is like a few weeks ago uh, we had uh, Mira Devada in here she's uh, a new uh, manager at the ACLU she's her parents were first-generation Indian Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, you know she's uh, has a going background so she has like fairer skin and she's a catholic because of that which is a little bit not it's i think people are more accepting of that or they understand it more i should say mm-hmm. um but she also remembers very acutely people making the same sort of like comments like mm-hmm. like this is it but there's a there's some kind of difference and you always had to be differentiated
2: exactly Yeah.
1: and so yeah i'm i'm uh Yeah, I'm trying to reckon with that kind of stuff just overall because I I find it uh, like I can't believe that's happening, but it really is happening.
2: Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because now I'm way more white passing than I was when I was little. So when I speak about that, a lot of people don't understand until I show them a picture of what I looked like when I was little. And then they can clearly see that I look different from a lot of my classmates. But... Um, it's interesting talking to communities that have experienced that too, and telling them about my background, showing them pictures of me when I was little and being able to relate on that level.
1: Yeah, I mean, with everything, with all the kind of sort of social issues that people don't understand, you're in a particularly um, interesting position to be like, no, actually, this is what's happening. You might not believe it, but it's for sure a a, a, a a huge influence on people still now.
2: Exactly. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent.
1: So I just want to get this out of the way because I didn't want to have to talk about this. Uh, this is the Miss Delaware thing. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I it's, it's cool. Like I'm, I think, I think it's fine, but it is a little bit like, so you are a, maybe I would describe it and you can disagree or agree or whatever i mean you're you're a a, a progressive sort of forward-thinking academic mm-hmm. and and political candidate but uh you you won a uh, a beauty pageant yes so how do you tell that story how do you how do you kind of how, how do you uh, explain how that happened
2: I think the best way to explain it is to look at what Miss America is now. We don't have a swimsuit competition anymore. We didn't even have an evening gown competition where you walk around and look pretty. It was all about what you know and community service projects that you're working on so we had a TED talk that we did we had multiple on-stage questions and we had a private interview and of course we had talent like we always do but they're stepping away from being a beauty pageant we're actually not even called a pageant anymore it's a competition and it's trying to step away from the crown and all of that sort of Stuff that used to represent a beauty pageant as opposed to the intelligence and what all of us women do for our communities. So if you look at all 51 of us that competed, every single one of us has a background kind of like me where we are so into education. We care so much about our communities and we try to bring all of the things that we know from our education, from our experiences to help communities all around the country. And if you just look at our Miss America, who's the first Korean American Miss America, she's only 20 years old and she's done so much already in the few months that she's been Miss America. She's brought attention to mental health and attention to disabilities. So it's it's a lot more than it used to be, and I'm really proud of the organization for that.
1: Well, I, I, um, I want to let you brag a little bit because... I was interested. In, I was just interested in that dynamic because I don't understand it, and yeah. you, you know, you explained it pretty well. And uh, when I read uh, about your first, your first sort of like uh, action or your first public uh, work as this Miss, you know, Miss Delaware, mm-hmm. was this uh, garden in Southbridge, and you know, I know that your your uh, you have a. a a sort of proclivity toward, you know, nature Mm -hmm. and sort of being like that. But I thought this was incredible. Can you explain um, sort of how that came about and what you did as your first thing? Because I think this is uh, actually really profound.
2: Absolutely. I was approached by Volunteer Delaware. They mentioned that they had $600 to start any project in the state that a bunch of us wanted to start. And I was one of the recipients of that And I knew that I wanted to focus on an environmental justice issue. That's what I talked about at Miss Delaware. That's what I'm studying in school. And I knew that Southbridge was an environmental justice community that was struggling with multiple issues from flooding, excess heat, it's a food desert. So that's where I knew I wanted to do this project. But the most important thing about environmental justice work and community work in general is you have to ask communities what they want and what they need. You can't just go in with your own ideas and push it on people. So I went to the South Wilmington Planning Network meeting, and I said, I have $600 to do any project. What do you want in this community? And Wayne Marshall spoke up and said, I have this community garden, and I started working on it a couple of years ago, but we just don't have the funds or any resources to re-up it. And Chef Dimitri Su, Demetrius, Dimitri, he spells it Dimitri Sue, but it's Demetrius, he said he would love to do free cooking classes with all of that harvesting of food. So I decided, you know, that's a great $600 expense to go and do this garden over again. So I worked with Wayne Marshall to figure out date, to figure out exactly what type of vegetables he wanted. And we've reached out to other community members, a lot of kids to see if they wanted to help out. So a lot of kids came and we taught them all about gardening, about weeding, and a couple months later about harvesting, and we had a donation-based market. So we gave out much, much of the food for free, and then I think we made close to $100 in donations from people who could afford to give that for a bunch of these vegetables. And we had a free cooking class with it as well with Chef Demetrius, which was an incredible experience to be able to teach a community how to grow their own food, how to harvest it, and then how to cook with it as well.
1: Yeah, I love that stuff. I mean, I'm I'm a big uh, I'm a big food guy anyway. I, I, I cook all the time, and whenever we have something here, I try to cook for people who come. Um, I have to give a great shout out to Ray Crantz at the Delaware Call because one of the things she's been working on, and there'll be more stuff um, soon, is food justice stuff. So she's talking to uh, Food Not Bombs. She's talking to free you know people who are giving away free meals. She's talking about all of that kind of stuff, and um, You know, not only is it great sort of community work, but it gets people sort of connected to uh, just sort of more connected to, to something integral. Do you know what I mean?
2: Absolutely. And I think another part too is getting kids into nature who usually don't have access to green space. I was working on a project in Baltimore, Maryland as well. That's a reforestation project. I was working with a 13-year-old who had never planted a tree before. she had never even dug a hole before. And I was talking to her about being a park ranger. And at the end of the day, she told me that she also wanted to be a park ranger. So having kids get into nature, get into these green spaces and really get their hands dirty can have an integral Part in their life and in their decisions for their careers.
1: Yeah, I'm my my wife, um, her grandparents, her grandfather, was uh, worked for the National Park Service, uh, in a, in a sort of a rural area in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just seems like everything that he did was about knowing the 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 ground around you, understanding like going out on hikes and understanding like these are the kind of arrowheads that are here because these are the kind of natives that were here and Mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff. I just find it, I I find it really profound. And it was interesting when, you know, I saw that you were, you know, a graduate student in public policy, but like I actually wanted to do something with the state parks. I Mm want to do something like to connect people with a, a, a bigger thing. I think that's I think that's amazing.
2: Yeah. Well, my graduate work is actually focused on nature connection and demographics. Ah, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. Exactly. I'm looking at a national park in D.C., Rock Creek Park, and okay. a state park in Baltimore, which is Gwynne Falls Legan Park, and looking at yeah how different demographics relate to nature, and then how that relates to park usage. Because right now in the National Park Service, a large part of the staff is white, and a large part of the visitors are also white, and These spaces are for everybody, and we need to make sure that the spaces are representing the people in the country, and right now that's just not the case. Because of all these reasons, you know, a lot of different demographics don't have access to nature like we were talking about before, so why would they think that the national parks are for them? So this is a study to get a better understanding of why.
1: Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to do it. We're going to do Delaware politics now. Are you ready? This could get get nasty stuff. Oh, goodness. uh... I'm just kidding. <laughs> if it gets really bad, Carl cuts it out. Doesn't matter. So I want—I just want to talk about your sort of your decision to stand for political office.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because it does—it—it—it it, it really should mean something. I think for a lot of people, it means something that I—I I disagree with. Um, not because I disagree with the. the the policies or, or what they believe so much. I just disagree with the idea of it being a way, as a, like a stepping stone to the next thing. Yeah. Like I want to be the actually the U.S. House representative and take over for L.B.R. Okay. Or I want to be, uh, I want to be in leadership, and then I want to be like a vice chancellor on the Chancery Court, mm-hmm. something like that. Like or I wanna be like you have like it's sort of like like I worked I worked a corporate job, I'm not proud of it, but I understand like you have to do things, but if if, if you're if you're interested in public service, yeah. it's a little bit of a different situation. So I guess just in general, if you had to like sort of <clears throat> describe why you are interested in public service, just in general at this at this level, how would you do it?
2: I always talk about community-driven work, which was my work as Miss Delaware as well. And I noticed working with these communities that there is a huge gap between what the communities want and what policymakers are actually doing. And that's why I wanted to run for office. I know these communities so well now. I know what they want. And I have the background to understand how to bridge that gap. So for me, it's never been about a stepping stone. It's actively closing that gap and making sure with me as state rap or without me policymakers will start to understand how important closing that gap is
1: so what would you say they want said like you sort of have a more of a connection
2: yeah.
1: um, you know at the community level and you certainly do I think mm-hmm. um, how would you articulate like what you think um, the, the, the people of a sort of suburban Newark I guess whatever we want to say yeah. um, what do they want what do you what, what what's driving you to um, to try to get a position of power and 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 make your mark what do you think you should do
2: i mean honestly just big picture they want their voices heard and right now that's not happening so when you talk to them about specific issues a big one when it comes to environmental justice is traffic and air pollution they are very like very evident that there's a lot more traffic a lot more construction they're not getting notified about it just by talking to them for literally two minutes you can figure that out and then when it comes to workers rights like understanding that from an environmental justice perspective they shouldn't have to work in dangerous conditions and then go home and be polluted by the same factories that they work in so if you Take the time to actually listen to people who are working in these factories. You take the time to listen to community members living with air pollution and water pollution. These are the things that they tell you. It seems simple, but a lot of policymakers tend to dance around it. Um, I think to working with the Route 9 and Route 13 quarter communities, they know what environmental justice is and they've tried to talk to policymakers about it to then just be ignored. Like They'll have their attention, it seems, for a couple of weeks and then they'll just drop them. So that's a huge thing that cannot happen. When you start to talk to communities, you have to make sure that you're following through and continuing that conversation. Right now, that's not happening, and that's all communities want.
1: Yeah. What? Because what, what, I know that, that corridor is a huge sort of uh, working-class suburban uh, corridor, mm-hmm. and I, I, I sort of have a f- feel for what the general issues are but i wonder how to apply them to specific stuff that's going on like for example i saw you jump up already why don't you give me it? you're going to you already have you already have an example well, give it to me go ahead
2: one example is 95 there's Talk that they want to cap 95, which would be, you know, closing that off, adding something that would actually help the community. So, like green space or whatever the community is interested in having there. That would be huge for air pollution levels, for asthma rates, like all of these medical conditions that we don't think about when it comes to environmental justice. Just something as simple as capping 95 can make a huge difference. And I don't think a lot of people even know what that means, they've never heard that term. People don't even know what environmental justice is, yeah. so I think simple solutions like that can make a huge difference.
1: Yeah, I love that idea. I mean, one of the things we talk about all the time, just from a historical perspective, and this isn't um, this isn't something that just impacts like Wilmington or places where ninety five go, but all different kinds of uh, cities, Atlanta, uh, D.C., all the different, but putting a highway in the 40s and 50s through these cities were uh, – it was a disaster mm-hmm. for the way that the cities operated at, at, at a gra- grassroots level. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I think anything that these neighborhoods can do to make it more sort of uh, to, to, to close-knit yeah, exactly. or, or have some sort of say in what the neighborhood looks like, where you can walk, where the bus stops are, and, and what, what it is, and it's not just – dodging cars yeah I think I, f- I feel like um, I feel like a lot of city planning is about how to dodge cars and it's true. fucking stupid
2: yeah it is. yeah when you think of other solutions like it just seems so ridiculous that that's what people focus on yeah. but yeah reconnecting communities is huge you've seen you know back in the day these vibrant communities that had these relationships and then you see a highway go right through the middle and then those relationships and all of that, that vibrant energy that was there just disappears. And reconnecting that is going to be so important.
1: Yeah. All right. So here's the two, here's the two questions I have to see. These are the difficult ones. Oh, goodness. First one is Dave Bentz, who is uh, uh, yeah. uh, leaving the seat and to spend more time with his family or whatever the cliche is. <laughs> I, I spoke to him uh, on the podcast uh, right when COVID started, so it was a while ago. It was over over a year, maybe two years. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he's a you nice. Know, he seems like a fucking great. Seems like a great guy, great, great fella. You know. <clears throat> but the one thing that stuck that, that stood out to me, the one thing I remember, I spoke to him for an hour. The one thing that I remember is asking him. Hey, this COVID thing just started. We're about like a month in. Maybe we were six weeks in three It was very early, but we were definitely in, you know, full sort of lockdown. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I don't think we're doing the right thing for the people that we have in these prisons, and uh, we should probably like try to say something about it. Like, I don't know how many people we can let out. How many people are nonviolent? How many people are old? Uh, but I know they're not getting the right protection that they should get. So let's talk about you know whether it's one person or a hundred people or a thousand people. Let's talk about getting some people out of prison. And uh, he, I, I, I've told this story before. Maybe maybe Carl can go back in the archives and kind of find his reaction because maybe I'm maybe I'm exaggerating it. But I remember feeling like he didn't want to even fucking discuss it. He thought the idea of me bringing it up was uh, sort of in poor taste. And again, I don't want to... I think Dave Bence is a fine guy, but I I found that answer uh, a little bit disconcerting because I found it to be something where I'm going to do what I think I can do in my lane, and I'm not going to lead, and I'm not going to speak out, uh, regardless of what I think might be right. I don't want to be involved in anything that's I don't want to be involved in anything that seems radical.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm afraid of it. Which he he he, he seemed uh, he seemed very afraid of it. Which and is... I wonder what your thought about that is.
2: It's just really interesting to me cuz he had such a focus on healthcare and I feel like that's a huge demographic whose healthcare is ignored so i feel like as somebody who cares so much about healthcare that's something that he would have a stronger opinion on
1: yeah and i don't i mean everybody was um you know it was the beginning of covid and everybody was sort of on edge anyway yeah. and carl do you remember this conversation because i've told this story a few times and and again i'm i'm not trying to um to sort of badmouth Dave, david bens I, I i was i was actually very surprised of the feeling that I got. And again, maybe I'm, maybe I'm exaggerating it. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll have to go back because I don't remember the very specifics of it. I think it might be a little bit, and I think exaggerated in terms of like, I think the way that he was approaching it was probably a little bit different than the way you were approaching it in terms of like what the context was. Yeah. Because I think also in the hat, like a thing in the legislature that you often get is that people have their, people have their lanes and they get really angry when someone else gets into their lane. Um, and not everybody's like that. Like, there's people who, you know, are very happy to work with anybody that wants to jump into that lane. But, like, for example, with prison reform or, like, prison stuff, like, the lane right now, the people who do that are Melissa Minor-Brown and Marie Pinckney. Like, they both, um, you know, they did the state of state corrections, uh, Mimi's chair of corrections, I believe, and Marie, I believe, is that in the Senate. This is this is before, before uh, Marie was in, but... I think my guess would be the way he was approaching it was like, you know, I've never been in prison. I don't have, I don't know people in prison. Like, you know, that might be something we won't talk about, but like that's not really my lane. I don't really know enough to do that, but I might just be kind of making and I'll, pro- I'll I will edit various parts of this depending on what the actual thing was. Yeah, I, to be I, perfectly I honest, not, I don't I, remember. That'd yeah. My guess.
1: I don't remember either. And again, I don't think, I don't, I don't think it was bad necessarily. I just think, as you said, maybe he thought, like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be tied down in a, this conversation. Yeah. But his first reaction was to like deflect it and be like, "This isn't my lane." And so maybe that's true. And I just feel like that's not sort of good enough anymore. And again, maybe I'm maybe I'm stepping out too far, but I feel like you should have some feel for um, topics like that, and be like, you know what, I don't I don't know about this, but I feel what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But he did not feel what I was saying.
0: Well, yeah. and also for better or for worse, Dave Bens was never really a politician. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's a he's a, and I don't say that as a bad thing at all, but like no. he's no, I know what you mean. He's like a he's a wonk. He's just a guy. He's just a regular guy. The yeah. Hashtag wonk. Um, but, like, he, yeah, he really digs into policy issues and, like, he's very subtle in the way that he deals with things, just having worked with him on a couple things. And does really, I think, really care about people and does really care about the issues. But when it comes to, like, selling it, like, that's never been his, you know, he's a behind-the-scenes guy generally.
2: Yeah. Well, what I've been told, too, about Delaware politics and just politics in general is there is, like, the Dave Bens of politics who... Sits behind and builds those relationships and those connections and is careful not to cross into others' lanes so he can have that support when he needs to. And then there are those who are really upfront and, you know, will use their voice for everything and you need both. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that he didn't want to move into somebody else's lane so he could then have those connections and networks when it came really important time to get policies passed. But I do think it's important to. Have an opinion and be able to speak on that.
1: Yeah, and I understand exactly what you're saying. I I, I disagree,
2: mm-hmm.
1: actually, because I think, and again, I disagree on like a sort of a, a top top level. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you can have a seat at the table, and you need to build relationships with this person and that person. But the fact of the matter is that y- you actually don't. Mm-hmm. If 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 your uh, goal is to make systemic change, if your goal is to represent people who aren't represented, then you have to represent the people who aren't represented. Mm-hmm. The people who aren't representative, I think, now again, I could be wrong about this because I'm not one of these people, but I suspect that the people who aren't represented don't care if you're friends with the people who are represented. Do you know what I mean? like if if your idea is to is to uplift mm-hmm. and to focus on people who are outside the corporate sphere yeah then i don't think the people you're trying to help care if you're nice to the to to like the the the
2: the, the, the movers and the shakers so question for you with that yes so then if your goal is to get policies passed to help these communities, right. but you haven't taken the time to build those relationships, so nobody signs on and helps you with that, so you can't get anything passed, then what?
1: Well, that's a great question. <laughs> um, no, I, I definitely think it's a um, it, <clears throat> it's a balancing act. Yeah. Because a uh, perfect example we are getting ready to interview a guy who wrote a book about the franchise in delaware uh the LLC corporate tax haven uh how 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 the system of delaware is ripping everybody off and uh, so I'm talking to the guy who wrote the book and uh, he mentions like is anybody gonna even bring this up other than Kowalko, and I'm like, oh, this guy knows Jack. Kowalko. This guy knows John Kowalko, It's so good, you know. I'm so happy about this. And one of Kowalko's sort of knocks is he never really got anything done. Like he said the things that we're talking about, but he never, he was never able to maybe execute on it or 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 get get to it that we're going to help these people that we're trying to help. And so I appreciate the fact that that's tricky Mm -hmm. but I feel like there's a difference between trying to work within the system and showing everybody that you're part of the system and that you can do it like um, you know and I know this is not there's no right answer. You know, Medina's trying to do this. Marie Pinkney's trying to do this. I think to some extent, uh, Eric Morrison's trying to do this. You know, there are people trying to do this. So, like, <laughs> I don't think there's an answer. Like, I'm not asking you, like, what's the answer? I'm just like, what do you, th- what do you think about it? How, how, do you, um, how do you balance that?
2: Yeah. I think it's tough. You know, I've always been really good at networking and I already know Republicans that like me because I've been Miss and I've had to work with so many different people like they very much know where I stand on issues but they recognize that the reason that I am becoming a policymaker and you know my values are all good there's no you know negative reason for me doing this there's no power grab here so they're okay with that And I think that's important to be able to have those relationships. Absolutely, 100%. I also have strong opinions on policy. And I am willing to work really hard for these communities that haven't had a voice. And I will take a stand if I have to while maintaining those relationships. I think it's really important for people on both sides to recognize what your values are and why you're doing something as soon as they think that there's an alternative or a motive to why you're doing something, then you lose them. So yes. I'm going to be very cautious in explaining why I'm doing this, who I am, while also being really strong on my policy.
0: Yeah, And hope,
1: no,
2: I, hope that works.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree with everything you're saying because it's like the, you only, you, the only thing you can do, in my mind, is exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm, this is my genuine ideas, and this is genuinely what I'm trying to do. And as long as you do that and there's no like nobody can say well do you have an ulterior motive like what do you what do you mean like where mm-hmm. where, are you, where are you coming from yeah. as long as people don't feel that I think that that's exactly
2: right mm-hmm.
1: yeah you, you just, this is what I'm doing and uh, people can take it or leave it but I'm trying to be as true to it as I possibly can do
2: yeah I think and another important piece of policy is making sure that communities are actively talking to the General Assembly. I know a lot of times, you know, policymakers come and they say, I've talked to these communities and this is what they say. But I think we need to make sure they're actively on the floor, being able to explain what they're feeling and what they need to. I think we're missing that. And it, it means a lot more coming from them than it does coming from their representative every single time.
1: Yeah. So let's do this. Yeah. Let's talk about what's going on. We talked about it a little bit before I think Carl turned the microphones on. What's going on in the General Assembly now that you have an idea about or, or, or you have uh, something that you think would be a topic where you would, you would spend your resources, your time? Like is it, uh, is it uh, police reform? You know what? I don't even want to say. I don't want to direct you. Because we already talked about marijuana. I love weed. Everybody knows that. But I don't want to direct you. I want you to say what you think are some issues that are like right on the cusp that you think some activism and your support could push over the top.
2: Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Green Amendment is huge. That Ah, I care a great deal about. and. I remember before I ever thought of being a policymaker, I think in my first semester of grad school, we had to come up with our personal narrative. And my whole personal narrative was about supporting the Green Amendment and getting out and calling legislators to back it up and support it. So Green Amendment is something I care a lot about. Cumulative impacts policy is huge, and it passed in New Jersey, and I really think we can get it passed here. So that I've been talking to a lot of community members about already who didn't know what it was. I've talked to family. I've talked to friends about it. That is something that I want to put a lot of support and activism behind. I know you mentioned police reform, and that is want to See, I didn't want, to, I didn't want, to, I didn't want to direct you,
1: but again, it's, this is a big thing for me.
2: And it is, Carl knows, because I was just at this meeting, it is a really big deal for me as well. And what we talked about is having community members really needing to be behind it 100% because in the General Assembly, it just continues to get gutted. And we're never going to be able to pass it if we have so many, you know, ex-police officers in the General Assembly. It's just, it's not going to happen. So I think as a representative, being really like making an effort to really go into communities and talk about it and talk about what they can do and talking about obviously how I'll try in the general assembly as much as I can to get something written and passed. But we also need a strong grassroots support on that.
1: Yeah. I just think of something I'll, I'll, I'll bring this up as a, a specific and then we'll kind of sort of close out, but mm-hmm. something that's been sticking to my crawl for a couple months is this idea this? Uh, are you familiar with the um, the Delaware City redevelopment? No. Uh, you familiar with that, so they uh, the state has um, sort of said that a public public private partnership can redevelop part of Fort Dupont State Park in Delaware City. Hmm. Uh, many people have covered this. Uh, Jack Aaron and the Call has covered this, but it's it's everywhere. And really what they did, it's it's interesting because really what they did is similar to what they do in Wilmington, like gentrification stuff. So they just they set up a nonprofit sort of board, like public private board, and then they figure out how to take public assets uh, and sell them off to private entities. Mm-hmm. So it's like what they did uh, with the the bus station down here. They took a piece of private land and they sold it off to colonial parking and they developed it. But now that's that's for other people to make money. Yeah. So what they did in Delaware City was they took a a, a, a big parcel of state land, the Fort DuPont Park, right by the uh the fort there and uh the canal and the Delaware River. <laughs> and they're gonna develop it. They're gonna put a campground there. And they're going to put some 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 houses there, and they're going to just, just you know they're going to try to sell that to a private uh, entity to make money off of you know campground and, and development. And you know people in our circles have raised issue with this, and uh, you know people understand that it's, yeah, it's probably bullshit, but it's it's going forward. Because um, this is what we do. We give away, whether it's a plot of land in the city for a bus depot, or whether it's a plot of land in Delaware City that's part of Fort DuPont State Park. We figure out a mechanism by which we can transfer that public good to private hands so that they can figure out a way to try to make money from it. And we give them a great deal. So even if they don't make money from it, they don't really lose money Mm -hmm. because it's like a deal. And so, the the point of telling this story is that I love everything you're saying, Mm -hmm. but ultimately, you get down at Dover, and people like, you know, people like that are there that orchestrate all of this. They just do whatever they wanted to do. And, you know, I don't know the answer. I know that whatever Kowalko tried to do didn't work. You know, it was out of control. And then whatever other people did wasn't good enough. So I don't know how to, I don't know how to, you know, uh, thread that needle. Yeah. I don't know. But I'm interested in how you feel like you can thread that needle.
2: So, do you know about the riverfront expanding into Southbridge?
1: I a little bit. I know that they. Well, I know that obviously they built the basketball court down there, and they built the big thing, and they tried to do some some development to help with the flooding, and uh, the the watershed or whatever. So I, yeah. I only cursory. I have a I have a cursory knowledge of it. Not yeah. not much. No.
2: So, the biggest issue with gentrification is a lot of these businesses or like the riverfront will expand in these communities, but they don't have these policies in place ahead of time to make sure that housing won't go up to kick people out. That's a big part that's missing that needs to be focused on. And I think a lot of policymakers don't even recognize that that's something that has to happen ahead of time. I know just from being in graduate school and being able to work with professors who study like green gentrification in particular, that Policymakers really need to start focusing on that first step before that development comes in. And I think having that background in, you know, the Biden School studying environmental justice and green gentrification, I think that's something new that I'll bring in as a policymaker is if people start talking about development, making sure that there's that first step in place. I think that might be the way to thread the needle to say, you know, we can do this development, sure, but... We need to make sure that there's everything in place ahead of time to make sure that people who are already living there are not going to get kicked out. Yeah.
1: That's it. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it again. What we want to do right now is find out how uh, people can support your campaign, how they can support the stuff that you're doing, and what else we need to do to, um, to get you in Dover to start doing this work.
2: So we launch May 19th. It's coming up very quickly. At that point, we'll finally have the website ready. But i am Sophie kp sophiekp4de on everything, on all social media platforms. That's my website as well. And that's where you'll find how to donate. And we'll be outdoor knocking. So you'll definitely have a chance to talk to me in person. And hopefully I get to know everybody in the community. And you end up voting for me and donating.
1: I'm... I'm a supporter now. You've, you, I was a supporter before, but you know, no, that's all. That's, that's also Carl. Carl will link to everything. Um, I'm just really excited about the the direction everything's going in. I know you and I met at uh, at, at a Medina sort of uh, private function, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a an effort that many people have joined, and. I'm excited about the direction that it's going in.
2: Me too. And I'm really excited to see more young women of color that are running. I think for little kids seeing that, it's something we don't really think about, but that's huge. A lot of them don't see themselves in policy and don't think that that's a career option. And then you have people who are 26, like me, who's a young woman of color who's doing this. And I want to make sure that all little kids are seeing that this is an opportunity for them as well.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, you don't... um some people have to really think about why that's important. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't intrinsically understand that part of it. And again, <clears throat> a lot of stuff I do with like class politics sort of um, tries to diminish the idea of like representation because there's a paradox there and it's, it's tricky. Mm-hmm. However, when you're doing grassroots politics and you're trying to help people and you can connect with them in different ways that's extremely important so there's one thing about like being about representation but there's another thing about just be- being able to connect with people in your community
2: absolutely yeah. yeah I mean to make policy and for them to be able to talk to you about what they need they need to trust you and if you have that connection with them it's huge they'll tell you way more and you'll be able to make policy that actually means something to them
1: yeah. well patreon.com Slash the Highlands Bunker. Yes, Miss Delaware is in Highlands Bunker Studio. I'm sorry, people are probably very angry about this.
2: Disclaimer: too. anything I say doesn't represent the Miss Delaware organization or the Miss America organization. Absolutely there. not. My thoughts only. No, absolutely not.
1: We're not. We're not trying to fucking talk about uh, any of the organizational branding. <laughs> Fuck. We don't want to. T- we don't want to – look, Carl's very uh, – he's hes very sincere about making sure we never have any kind of legal problems. Oh, okay, good. I know. I, actually, I want to have legal problems because I feel like it would be a great promotion. Because I want to go to court and do, like, discovery. I want to ask people for their for their text messages and stuff. And so I say, like, slander and libel and stuff, and I – he never puts it in. Hey, he just fucking takes it all out.
2: I can see why. Can you leave anything
1: in? Carl actually has, you know, when you're in a, when you're in a lab or you're in a factory floor, and it says like 200 days since a reportable accident.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Carl's like, it's been three and a half years since uh, we've been sued. We had never been sued, so he thinks it's like a it's cool. I, I don't. Like, I think we should be sued.
2: I don't know. You How's want to be fun? able to keep going though, right?
1: Come on, Sophie. We can <laughs> keep going. Carl, here's my thing. You know what? Maybe this will be the fun half. I feel like a lot of people who have our politics are not out for the fight. They're scared. I feel like Carl's a little scared. He doesn't want to go to court. I want to go to court. I want discovery. I want to talk about people's fucking text messages. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I want to do, uh, you know, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard shit. <laughs> you know, did Pistol Pete shit in a bed? I want to know.
0: You know? That. I do. Yeah, me too.
2: Carl, how do you feel about that?
0: Yes. Discovery goes both ways. If Buddy. I remember, if I know my l- legal procedure correct. Correct. That's correct. Um, and, you know, we're running an organization here. We're trying to get people elected and hit a win number and make sure that they're able to pass a lot of policy when they get elected. And, you know.
2: Yeah. Small part to it. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> Folks, what we
1: call that, what we call that is a loser mentality. That's loser mentality.
0: Hey, yeah. 100% win rate in the state legislative <laughs> elections in 2020. We got a reputation to uphold.
1: We do. I don't. I don't at all, but actually Carl does have a reputation to uphold. That's true. Sophie has a re- reputation to uphold. You do? Yeah, I have nothing. I can just do whatever I want. I can do whatever <laughs> I want because Carl will never put it on the internet. That's the funny thing.
2: That's true. Yeah, you could really say whatever you want. I
1: know. He won't do it. I try to say the most vile... Like <laughs> in controversial shit. Yeah. He will not put it on Just the fucking won't make it, uh, I yeah. know. Folks, uh, you know uh whether you're uh whether you're in R D eighteen down by the mall, uh whether you're down in Sussex County, in Selbyville, whether you're here uh you know, in Forty Acres, which is now, by the way, as as it's been uh, told to me, Forty Acres is now in the suburbs. Krista Griffith is our I now, and my friend over in Lovering Avenue that Carl met tonight uh, re- reminded me that he's in the city right now, and I'm not. Son of a bitch. Well, it doesn't matter who's where, because you know what? <laughs> Left is best. Ooh.